feel like we should have known this already Were we even taught this at all? Everybody and welcome to Will This Be On The Test. I'm Maddie. And I'm Austin. And we're here today to talk about some things we should have learned in school but didn't learn, didn't learn fully, or didn't learn correctly. And sometimes we talk about how we've finally watched all of the Halloween movies. They're so good! Even the bad ones are good! I, I will stand by my argument that the Rob Zombie Halloween movies are not worth your time. I will give that to Austin if you are looking to have the actual Halloween movie experience. But if you're willing to just watch kind of a trashy Halloween slasher movie, um, and also the actress who played Jamie in that trilogy from the middle of the series is in these movies just as a different character. Yeah, Jamie from Halloween 4, 5, and not 6, but the character was 6. Yes. Um, and that it, giving it, I'm not giving anything away by saying she's in the reboot because it's a reboot and she's playing somebody else. Ugh. But Jamie Lee Curtis is a treasure. Yes, she is. And we were going to try to see Halloween Kills today, but I'm behind on some freelance work, in part because I was working so hard on this podcast. I love you guys so much. It's true. The sacrifices we make for you. I also, it's all for you, Damien. I also decided to target an ad to Antarctica to see what would happen. At least one person has looked at or clicked on it. So hello, if you are in Antarctica. And hello to whoever from Minnesota downloaded and there's like three different people who downloaded like all of our episodes at once. This might have happened before last week, but yeah, we did say say a special hello to you out on our um on our Twitter. Austin has faced the timer at me this episode. I think to be like Maddie, you need to actually Listen, watch your time. I'm not saying that you are the problem, but I'm a problem. You are a problem. <laughs> yeah. So. I don't think we've got anything else too big going on at the exact moment. So, uh, oh, well, we do have a TikTok now. We have done nothing on it, and I cannot promise we will ever do anything on it. But it is on the test pod if you are on the tickety tucks. Follow us. We might do something. We're considering having it be a place where we record little things that we learn that aren't enough for a full episode. And so if you're on TikTok, come join us on the test pod. Uh, same with that's the same handle as the rest of our social media. So yeah, and again, you can watch us. Uh, hopefully, if we ever do anything, be too old for the medium of TikTok. Hey, hey, though, my favorite TikTokers are for the most part about our age. <laughs> Although I'm still mad at the one who spoiled the end of Squid Game for me. Arr. I will find you. I'm gonna Liam Neeson Taken style find you. <laughs> All right, so should we get into it? Let's get started. All right, so Austin and I are heading to New York. Because we are going to see the musical Hades Town. Uh, keep your fingers crossed that everybody in Hades Town is staying, and all of Broadway, of course, is staying healthy. Because they did have to shut Aladdin down after one performance. <laughs> I know. Those poor people. Um, so we are planning on going to see Hades Town, and that's why I decided to talk today about the history of Broadway. Yes, because despite being in theater since I was three years old, so over thirty years, and having taken several theater history classes and having theater history be my favorite subject in college, I actually never learned the history of Broadway. American theater was very rarely talked about, except for the Federal Theater Project, which we talked about way back in the early episodes. So, so long ago. Before we had our really, really good uh, intro music, I believe we still had the school bell then, and we apologize. Yeah, that was a jarring mistake. We are so sorry. We, you know, it's all a learning experience. And I actually heard the best argument for listening to podcasts in reverse order. I always listen in order because I want to get the inside jokes. And I just give the podcasters leeway for the first however long I feel like I give them leeway for. Because I know they're figuring this out. Unless they are professional podcasters, they're figuring it out. I give them a lot of leeway. But I can see why people, like, we want to see where they are now. And then we go back to the beginning to, like, see they're get, they are going to get better. All right, so Broadway. 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 Ah, and then I close out. There we go. <laughs> Austin's looking at me like I hate you. Broadway, also known as the Great White Way, was around long before theater became the staple of that street. It was actually a trail used by Native Americans on the island of Manhattan. They called it the, I should have looked this up, Wikwazgek Trail, and it went the entire way across Manhattan. 
And then in 1624, the Dutch settled along the Hudson and established the new Amsterdam colony in 1626. They began to use the trail as well, calling it Herstraat or Gentleman's Street. Gentleman's Street? Ooh. Yes, I don't know if that had any d- double meaning to it. It went from Fort Amsterdam to a fortification that we now call Wall Street. Now, I didn't dig into this, but that makes me think Wall Street is so named because it was a wall. You know what? That makes a lot of sense. I've never actually pondered why it was called Wall Street. Because I think it was a wall. <laughs> because uh, they invented the wall there. So we have them to thank for the last five years. Yeah. Not the musical, the president. Then the English gained control of New Amsterdam in 1664 and creatively named it New York. Early settlers of any country. Not especially creative. I know. Obviously, theater already existed. What? I know, right? In fact, Shakespeare had died less than 50 years before the English gained control of New Amsterdam and renamed it New York. To put that in perspective, Jamestown Colony was established nine years before Shakespeare died. We tend to learn about things in a vacuum and they seem really far apart, but the English already had a stronghold on the Americas during Shakespeare's lifetime, and the Spanish had been here for a long-ass time already, so Shakespeare knew about America. Yeah, oh, we're actually, that's going to come up in mind too. All right. Or to look at it a different way, if we want to put it in our perspective. The difference between Shakespeare's death and the founding of New York would be the same as the difference between now and Roe v. Wade, now and Nixon saying, I am not a crook, and now, Austin will like this, and the invention of hip-hop music by DJ Cool Herc. (gasps) Wow! So New York was established the same length of invention of hip-hop between Shakespeare's death and then. The first theater in America was built in Williamsburg, Virginia in 1716 because a bunch of actors started to arrive from uh, from England and where they were like, um, we have no other skills. <laughs> Interestingly, according to the website Lives and Legacies, they opted to open the theater in the South because the South was more was more open and accepting than the North at the time. They were actually chiller with this frivolous Oh yeah, stuff. I guess they didn't have as many Puritans running around ruining things. The theater was set up not too differently from the Globe Theater with different price points. Uh, there were people on the floor, people in seats. George Washington was a huge theater lover and he refused to sit in the wealthy seats. He would sit down with the poors because he liked being closer to the stage and being able to see the action, hear the action better. <laughs> The first show to be put up in a theater built to be a theater in New York was or was the recruiting officer, and the theater was called the Theater on Nassau Street. It opened on December 11th, 1732, and would technically be the first Broadway play because it was Broadway adjacent. So this was the first off-Broadway. Uh, okay, that's, that's actually a complicated thing. <gasps> not all Broadway shows are on the Broadway street, and not all off-Broadway shows are off of Broadway street. I'll talk about all that in a minute. So the early theaters were small, a couple hundred seats, with very few opening before the Revolutionary War. Then the Revolutionary War started and all theater in New York was canceled. There was no theater. Then the war ended and the Park Theater opened in 1798, right uh, right near the street now known as Broadway. Remember, before this, the average theater in New York had seating for about 200. This had seating for 2,000 people, approximately 3.3% of the entire population of New York City at the time. That's a big theater. Mm-hmm. The city began continued to grow and more theater followed. Like, literally, as the city extended north, the theaters would extend north. Broadway itself, though, became the place uh, on September 12th, 1886, when The Black Crook opened. This is considered by many to be the first modern musical, and it actually happened by accident. <laughs> As most things Wait, do. did they actually just break out into song and they thought, oh my God, we can use this? Not quite. Um, this is considered uh, a theater producer had booked a French ballet company and a melodrama in two different theaters at the same time. This is normal. This is his job. Then the ballet company's theater caught fire. Regardless, he was contractually obligated to pay the ballet company and he was going to take a massive loss. So instead of going, well, fuck it and taking the loss... He said, all right, you two get together and make something happen. And so they put, they came together and they came up with The Black Crook, which is considered the first modern musical because it had these songs woven into the story, but it wasn't all songs and it wasn't a review. It had 484 performances when most shows were lucky to last for 20. And then it toured for decades afterwards. 
Um, to be clear, it's not 100% certain that this was the first ever musical. It's kind of hard to tell what the first ever book musical was, but this is the easiest to identify. Now, at this point, though, minstrel shows, vaudeville shows, all th this stuff was really popular. But the people who considered themselves above such things went to shows put up around the street known as Broadway. In fact, as John Kenrick, theater historian and writer, said, quote, Broadway, you could say, was the commercial spine of Manhattan as the settlement on Manhattan grew. Your importance was determined by your proximity to Broadway, unquote. Another theater historian and producer, Jennifer Ashley Tepper, pointed out that the farther a theater was from Broadway, the more likely it was to fail. Once the Civil War ended, touring productions became more common. They weren't easy, though. So, like, think about touring productions and all the stuff they have to bring with them. And they had to tour all over what was the Americas at that time. So trains were a thing, and that made it a little easier. But... When a show went to a place and they, if they could say an actor or a show was coming from Broadway, you knew it was going to be something good. These are people who had performed on Broadway. Now, if you look at how we advertise theatrical tours today, you'll see that this has stuck around. For instance, a lot of the bigger shows are done by a company called Broadway Across America. That doesn't mean you are seeing any actors who were in the Broadway production of that show or any Broadway production at all. It just means that they are putting on what they believe to be Broadway quality shows. And frankly, most of the time, I agree. I think Broadway Across America, and really, if you're putting on theater, good for you. Uh, but what about Cats? If you're putting on theater, good for you. What about that Diana musical? You know what? That could be still be someone's big break. Maybe. So originally, Union Square's portion of the Broadway area was the center of theater. But as the subway system opened, Times Square became a bigger deal. While previously theater, like I said, had been moving northward like the people of the city, it began to stay put. As Tepper put it, quote, theater started being seen as an institution in a way. It became more and more integral to the city. It became something people thought of as permanent, unquote. In other words, New York City and theater went hand in hand. People expected theater to exist in New York City, and they expected to be able to go see it in the same place consistently. This was New York City. New York City was theater. Um, which kind of led to a literal riot at one point. Yes. Which is a story for another time, boys and girls. No, you can't just tease me with riots. Hey, Those, hey. That's my bread and butter. You are the one who pointed the timer at me. Why do you think I cut out the riot? Oh my God, I've done this to myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just put my hood of shame back up. And to make it even better, I'll add this in real fast. There was actually a guy there who had been, like, in war and had said he had never seen a battle as bloody as the one over fucking theaters well over actors wow it was like philadelphia after they win or lose any kind of game <laughs> in the early 20th century there was kind of a mix of everything on broadway particularly uh translated operettas and princess theater shows <gasps> like frozen or aladdin or any of the disney musicals i mean it is halfway between a play and a musical princess musical the first show to install electric signs was a show called The Red Mill. This is when Broadway became known as The Great White Way. Now, that sounds scary because most things that involve the words great and white are racist. Or sharks. Who fight moose. <laughs> but in this case, it's actually not racist for once. It's because of electricity. They had colored light bulbs and then they were like, these keep burning out. So they replaced all of the colorful light bulbs with white ones that lasted longer. So you would go into the street and it was blindingly white, especially when it would snow. It would literally be a glowing white street. Oh, that sounds awesome. So no one really knows how the term came to be. It's commonly believed that a theater critic decided to call it that after a snowstorm. But nobody really knows. So yeah, the great white way. Not racist for once. Oh. The portion of Broadway... Uh, it's between 42nd and 53rd Street, and it showed a little bit of everything from Ziegfeld Follies to full plays and even movies. If you go back to our, like, history of movies one, you'll hear a little bit about what those looked like. Everything was there. Most of the shows were light on plot and heavy on spectacle, uh, kind of like Aladdin from what I've seen, although, dear Lord, it looks amazing and I still want to see it. Or Cats. Cats is just spectacle, yes. It has... A plot. No, it doesn't. No. <laughs> I remember seeing it when I was a kid with my mom and my brother, and they both wanted to leave at intermission. And, I, and they're like, we don't know what's going on. I'm like, I think I know what's going on. I want to see if I'm right. 
I think they're choosing a cat to kill and everybody's really happy about it. And that's, that is the plot of Cats. They're choosing a cat to die and everybody's really happy about it. Um, so while those song, these shows were light on plot, heavy on spectacle, this is when a lot of the Broadway standards came to be. Songs that are still sung today came out of this time period, the early 1900s through about the 1940s. Um, so even if we were to listen to them, though, I bet almost none of us could say what show they were from. There was a brief shutdown of theater in 1919 when the Actors' Equity Association was like, um, cool, glad we have work, would like to get paid for it. Kind of like what's happening right now with Yahtzee, uh, I-A-T-S-E, which are the techies for TV shows and theater. And the TV show movie ones are currently striking because they're not getting paid enough for the work they do for streaming services. So they were like, we're going on strike. And the theaters were like, but and they were like, what are you going to do? Call in scab actors and techies? And they were like, shit, we can't. So they actually had to meet their, meet their expectations. Uh, and this is around the time when... The show started becoming less frivolous, less showboaty, ironically, with the show called Showboat. <laughs> it was a musical with a book and a score, and it ran for over 500 performances. At the same time, though, because, you know, like I said, frivolous, frivolous, spectacle, spectacle, we started having serious dramas like those by Eugene O'Neill and George S. Kaufman, proving that theater in America didn't have to be silly to be successful. Also, Shakespeare had been happening this whole time, which is why the riot happened. Just going to keep bringing it back because it's going to piss off Austin. Then came the Great Depression and everything went to hell. Uh, the audiences disappeared, so did the performers, so did the producers. The performers and producers moved out to Hollywood because movies were still being made. And the theaters in New York started turning into movie theaters. But some theaters did stay open and they began to stage shows like Anything Goes and Porgy and Bess, which are still widely staged today. I have uh, not seen Porgy and Bess, but I have seen Anything Goes. And if you like tap dance, which I have come around on. And I've, it's one of the things that used to make her angry. Now she actually, ha she has turned around on it. I think it's because she saw some good tap dance. She's like, okay, I yeah. can, I'm on board with this. Yeah. And it also could be because I'm bitter because I was really bad at, bad at tap dance, like worse than at other types of dance. <laughs> uh, we also began to have political theater. And if you want to go learn more about that, go back to episode. I have a space for the number that I did not write down to learn about the Federal Theater Project. If you just look through ours, it's early, an early episode called we Federal Theater so Project. We are so professional. Hey, we're only at episode like 103. Someday we'll figure this out. So once the depression started ending, Broadway debuted Oklahoma exclamation point in 1943. The show ran for 2,212 performances. That makes it the lo 34th longest running Broadway production of any sort, musical, play, review, anything, as long as it's deemed a Broadway production. This is the 34th longest running after 2,212 Holy performances. Oh, uh, If we are looking at shows currently on Broadway, the only one that looks like it might surpass it soon is Hamilton. And by soon, I mean another 250, 300 performances. So like a year. And I also want to pause for a second and really drive that home. It'll take them about a year to hit 300 performances. They do eight shows per week three hour long musicals dancing singing sword fighting whatever these people are non-stop moving and singing and acting for three hours eight times a week plus rehearsals for 12 hours a day for a few weeks before that the average broadway performer makes about twenty-five thousand a year um the high-end ones obviously make closer to a million, because, but those are the Idina Menzels. The chorus people you see, the ones that are hoping this is their big break, they are making less than your average teacher, and we already know teachers are not paid enough. And they have to live in New York. Yeah, they're living in New York like this, guys. To put this in perspective, football players make $30 million a year. Patrick Mahomes, who I, you know I love, but he, he's the highest played, and I deleted how much he makes, but I think it's $34 million a year. You want to know how many football games they play? I would say regular season, like 14? 17 total. 17. Per season. Each game is about the same length as a Broadway show, but they're moving less than the Broadway actors are. Breaks my heart a little bit because the actors are doing this eight days a week. And then we have our even lower paid like techies and designers and all of that. And yes, their equity, their association does the best they can with what they got. But come on, come on. Anyway, Oklahoma, with its weird-ass exclamation point, brought us into the modern stage musical and opened the doors for a lot of other shows like West Side Story, Hair, Chicago, and so forth. This is actually something Austin and I have been talking about a lot lately. He hates Rent. 
absolutely hate Rent. I recognize Rent as a product of its time and like it for the nostalgia factor. Because he didn't have the nostalgia factor like I do. Yeah, it's true. I was not a theater kid scream singing it in the uh, in the car on the way to school. But if it wasn't for Rent, we wouldn't have had Book of Mormon. We wouldn't have had Hamilton. And because Oklahoma pushed doors open, we've had the rest of theater. Now, on the surface, okay, I lived in Oklahoma. I hated Oklahoma because most community theater productions of Oklahoma brush over what happens in the show. They try to, like, kind of like how we brush over the fact that Angel killed a fucking dog in Rent, and that is why Rent happens. So there's this dream ballet in Oklahoma, and when you're a kid, it's really, really boring. But the whole thing comes down to Lori's got two suitors, one of whom is Judd, and then at the end of it, Judd, like, kidnaps her to go rape her, and then, if memory serves, Judd kills himself. I think he's talked into killing himself. I don't think Curly kills him. I think it's Curly. I've, 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 it's been a while since I've seen it. But if you have Broadway HD, I highly recommend watching the Hugh Jackman version. It's really good. Wolverine? But seriously, this is 1943. And the show involves rape and murder and suicide. It is dark as fuck. Where before it had been anything goes and showboat. And like, not, I mean, I'm not saying these didn't have sad moments, but it's like, da da da, spectacle, spectacle, spectacle. This was, hi, we're going to rape and murder people. And then we're going to say, you're doing fine, Oklahoma. Okay. And also it had a woman who owned her sexuality. Ada Annie, uh, she's just a girl who can't say no. And she ends up with a guy who's like, you have a past. I have a past. Let's move on past our past together. <laughs> so I actually appreciate it now. Things got uh, increasingly progressive for the next decade or two, and there was a lot of creativity and more pushing of boundaries in the 60s and 70s, you know, like naked people running around on stage during hair and whatnot. And yes, I, my students always ask me this. Yes, I have worked on a show where people were naked. No, I have never been naked in a show. I am usually backstage. And they weren't naked naked. They had dance belts on, but the rest was naked. Um... But the number of musicals and plays being put on was also going down. In the 1920s, there are about 80 theaters on Broadway. As of 1969, there were 39. This probably has to do with the fact that we are basically constantly at war, <laughs> both here and abroad. And people began to see theater as something of the past, clearly not remembering the rebels of the theater, Federal Theater Project who were like, hey, guys, look at that Hitler dude. Do we not see a problem with this Hitler dude? And Americans were like, no, he seems like a stand-up like fellow. Maybe, just maybe. That on this Hitler might be bad. Yeah, Federal Theater Project was like Hitler bad, and America was like Hitler nice. We like Hitler. Um, and then we turned away a boat full of Jewish refugees. That's a story for another time. Uh, the seventies and eighties really weren't great for Broadway. Now, Austin, you're from the Midwest. Yes. And you were raised, I'm sure, like me, with you know, you know, New York's really dangerous. New York's yeah. really dangerous. You, you, it's just drug addicts and mugging and violence and. That's because the people got the gangs, the people telling us that grew up in the 70s and 80s when it was like that. It was one of the most violent places on Earth. Um, the whole area of Broadway began to have sex clubs and lots of homelessness, lots of drug dealers. In fact, the theater district was considered one of the dangerous and least desirable places in all of New York. So Joe Papp was like, well, fuck this. And he was from the public theater and he began the Save the Theaters campaign in 1982. This nonprofit worked with Actors' Equity, which is the um, actor union and stage managers, to stop the demolition of the theaters because that was starting to happen. They're like, well, you know, this is what's going to happen. Just tear them the fuck down because obviously the problem is the fact that the theaters are here oh, because yeah. that's where you go to sin, which is that actually a longstanding belief throughout America and the rest of the world is that theater is where the prostitutes are. And I'm not saying there are never prostitutes at theaters, but I'm saying let them go see their show. They're taking their night off. Yeah. The um, PAP got HR 6885 introduced, which was to designate Broadway and Times Square a national historic site. This matters because it would have meant there were government resources to rebuild and preserve the area. Mayor Ed Koch did not like this. Neither did his rich developer buddies who wanted to knock down all the theaters and build their crappy, probably apartments there or whatever. The bill was not passed. So in 83, Joe Papp was like, uh, fuck you all over again. The Save the Theaters group began to campaign for each individual theater in the district to become a landmark, <laughs> inside and out, which meant that each one had to have its own set of paperwork. Basically, they, and they can't do anything while this paperwork is being resolved. So Ed Koch finally had to give an inch, which involved creating the Theater Advisory Council, which Pap was a part of. And obviously, the theaters are still there. Not all of them, but in a good number. Enter the 90s. 
policies. The hair got bigger. The shoulder pads got smaller. I think it's the opposite. I don't know. I don't remember the 90s that well. So long ago. Policies actually began to be put in place to revitalize the city with a special focus on the theater district. Um, like we're starting to get the AIDS epidemic under control a little bit, which I think probably helped them go, okay, let's focus on some other stuff because AIDS was a huge problem in the theater community. Um, I was talking to a guy once who was a Broadway chorus boy back then. And he said like almost everybody he knew from those shows is now dead because of the AIDS epidemic, because they, they didn't know. That's the thing is like, we love to judge them. They didn't know for a long time what was causing it. It's not intuitive. Like, it's like at first we were like, um, food touching, like what, what spreads COVID? We finally figured it out. Well, we have more technology now. Mm-hmm. And also AIDS was a lot harder to figure out because it's spread by very specific things. And and also, I mean, we had a lot of resistance from Ronald fucking Reagan about actually doing anything about it. And a lot of misinformation going around. Um, and especially given the populations that disproportionately affected, we didn't care. But that's a whole... We haven't talked about the AIDS epidemic very much, have we? No. That's it's really kind of like, bum it, people out sometimes. Dude, the AIDS epidemic is like the looming specter of this podcast that you know we're going to get to. We are going, going to be really get sad. To, yeah. Well, we were taught about it better than people before us, but not especially. I think we were well. like in that weird bubble of we are we the can last talk ones about it, thought about it. And then it's like now it's like it's solved, but it's very not. Oh, my students don't know what it, my students didn't know what it was. Like I had to explain HIV/AIDS to students uh, every couple of years. I I was the one doing it because our sex ed classes didn't teach it. Well, I mean, clearly uh, the only way to prevent AIDS is abstinence for forever. I mean, yeah, that is the best way to prevent STDs, pregnancies, etc. is abstinence, but that's not reasonable. Uh, anyway. Okay, policies began to be put in place with the special folks in the theater district. They wanted it to turn they wanted to turn it into a high-class, read, gentrified, and unaffordable area. So lots of the shows had opened in the 80s, like um, Phantom of the Opera and Cats. But suddenly Rent was open. Disney began to produce musicals for the first time. So adults, particularly New Yorkers, saw themselves reflected in Rent. Disney musicals made theater a family event, and theater came back in the 90s because of this. Now, theater is back. It's not where it was in the 20s. I think there are 41, yep, 41 Broadway theaters total. And I'll be honest, they are prohibitively expensive. Theater is prohibitively expensive. They won out in their whole, let's gentrify and make this unaffordable. And I can tell you, there are very few actors out there who like that techies we want you to be able to see theater and even community theater is becoming prohibitively expensive so we need to like put our heads together and find a solution that works for everybody because rushing a show and for standing there for hours not being able to pick it not the same thing but i am glad that they're starting to put them out on streaming services at the very least it's not the same as i've talked about on previous episodes but it's something let's talk about what it means to be a broadway theater as opposed to an off-broadway theater or an off-off-broadway theater because you got that up earlier yeah um, the fact is, not all Broadway shows are on Broadway, and some off-Broadway shows are on Broadway. There are 41 Broadway theaters in the theater subdistrict. Um, but with COVID, who actually kind of knows? Like, COVID could have shuttered some doors permanently. We don't know. The main thing that makes it a Broadway show is it has to have a theater with at least 500 seats. That's it. Huh. Uh, and to be considered for a Tony Award, there's a certain number of performances you have to have of the same show. And... The actor awards have to be a specific or you have to be like the first one or the second one, depending on what, how it works. It's all very it's it's very political. Um, but to be a Broadway show, you have to be on you have to be in one of the designated Broadway theaters, which has at least 500 seats, which are both on Broadway and slightly off. Off Broadway had actually begun in the 1950s, became massive in the 90s with double the number of productions that were happening on Broadway. And. Here we come in with the longest running off-Broadway show in all, of all time. And this is, I mean, consistently running. 17,000 performances of the Fantastics. What? Mm-hmm. That is so many performances. 17,000. That's, I can't do the math, but it's, I would go with probably 50 years. Yeah. Um, I be, And it did close so 10 years ago. I think it's open again now or it reopened for a while. I actually like the Fantastics, but it's it's a matter of taste type of show. Off-Off-Broadway arose in the 1960s and it was just more off avant-garde, man. It had the beat poets and all of that. And moo for me. Moo, moo with me. Oh, moo with me. Um, it has evolved over time. It does have regular shows now too, but it is still more avant-garde type theater. If you're going to go see a walkthrough production of Macbeth, chances are that's going to be off-off-Broadway. Uh, Puffs was off Broadway. I loved Puffs. That was fun. That was the last show. That was that the last play you and I saw. Yeah. No. No, it's not. We saw Newsies. Oh no, we saw Newsies. That's right. That's right. The big difference is that 
between Broadway and Off-Broadway is that both of those have become more commercialized than Off-Off-Broadway. So Off-Off-Broadway is still kind of its own thing. If you're doing an independent show, it's going to be Off-Off-Broadway, most likely. Off-Broadway has money. Broadway has the most money. One thing I couldn't find a straight answer for. Why is Broadway considered the best? There is no answer. There isn't one. So my thought, funding, habit, televised awards. Because they have the most money, therefore they get the most ads, therefore they get the most people. And because they want to, they have the most funding, they can pay the best actors and blah, blah, blah. Biggest names. There's a lot of big names that go on Broadway and not just theater actors. Habit comes from the whole, well, Broadway is the New York theater scene. And televised awards. They just have televised awards, which means people think this is important. I, I can tell you, I have seen high school productions that were better than professional ones. I have seen Broadway shows that were absolutely terrible and community theater plays that were amazing. But with the right money, advertising and awards, anything can be considered the best. So if somebody wants to give us some money, awards and ads. I mean, why don't we just start giving ourselves awards? Like if we said we we were, a, I don't know, Peabody Award winning podcast, there's no way they can check that. Wait, actually, there's there's hundreds of ways they can check that. Okay, forget. I what said if this. we spell it differently? Ooh yeah. Um, P E A B A W D Y. Ooh yeah. We, we are a Peabody Award winning podcast. I'm trying to imagine what a body P would look like, and that's just. That's, I think you need two of them in a bra. It's too lewd. <laughs> uh, so if you see a show anywhere. Don't be disappointed that it's not a Broadway show. It doesn't inherently mean it's going to be a bad show. And whether you're seeing Broadway or off-Broadway or nothing Broadway, if you don't go to see the star, go to see the show. I remember there was a production of, I want to, it was in the West End. I can't remember what it was, but it had a Disney actress who was going to be in the lead. Well, she got sick because people fucking get sick. And people were calling the theater and demanding their money back because my kid only wants to see this. We're only coming to see because of this actress. The understudy is going to be as good. It's as simple as that. This person has trained. They are a trained actor. They are not throwing a rando in there. Go and see the show anyway. Uh, when I saw Shuffle Along, I did luckily get to see Audra. But apparently there was a, a night when Audra was sick and they put in her understudy. And people were demanding their tickets back. Lin-Manuel Miranda got on Twitter and was like, uh, fuck you guys. And you know how positive he always is. But he probably said it very politely. No, it was oh, not. Oh, really? It was not polite. He didn't say fuck you guys, but it was, you understand that this is a professional and you are going to be lucky to see her. I believe she won a Tony this year, if she's who I think she was. Um, so yeah. And also like Austin and I went to go see, um, Whose Line Is It Anyway live. That was, you were with me, right? Yeah. And Ryan Stiles was sick. Mm -hmm. People were complaining all over. I'm only wanting to see Ryan's style, blah, blah, blah. But they brought in somebody else oh, who was amazing. Dave Foley. They Dave brought Foley. in Dave fucking Foley. Now, if you like comedy from the last 30 years, you've seen Dave Foley. He is funny. He is talented. We were lucky to see him. Seriously, guys, get it together. The understudies are not bad. Um, yeah, Broadway is important because it changes theater. Broadway is where new theater gets, like, new theater gets invented elsewhere. And when it gets to Broadway, that's when we get to see where theater is going. Like, Hamilton started in the basement of the drama bookshop, if I remember right, which also never going to go to New York. Uh, most shows begin in someone's basement or their podcast studio or while they're, you know, sitting on the back of their car high in Colorado and watching the stars, like... Theater starts all these different places. It's when it gets to Broadway that you get the idea of where theater in general is going. That doesn't mean the show you're going to go see at your local high school or your community theater or regional theater or touring production is not worth it. They are absolutely worth it. And also, where do you think we get the Broadway actors and techies from? So go support your local theater because one day they could end up on Broadway or not. And that's fine, too. Yeah, because like we're from the same town as uh, brilliant actor and genius. Paul Rudd. Paul Stephen Rudd, as you introduced in Halloween. Uh, we went to the same high school as Rob Riggle. Yeah. Oh, we, we have really, no, like, located ourselves. Yeah. Um. Oh, the guy from Ted Lasso, I think, lived here, didn't he? Yeah. Yes. I can oh. never remember his name. I want to call him Fred, and I know that's not his name. No. Oh, my God. I know his name. Um. And then- Jason Sudeikis. Jason Sudeikis was from here. Um. I went to the same college as- both. I, I changed colleges. I went to the same college as- uh, Mandy Patinkin for a year. I went to the same college as 
Cam uh, Cam from Modern Family for a year. Like, Kansas actually has some, like, actors who come out of it. Yeah. And then I moved to Boston. Mostly comedians. And then I moved to Boston and went to the same college as Fonzie. Oh, yeah. And the creators of Friends and Will and Grace, uh, who apparently, they would come and teach comedy script writing, like, TV script writing, and tell the kids they were all going to fail and make them cry. <laughs> Which isn't funny, but it's also funny. No, that's 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 very funny. Because it's true. Not that they're failures, but most like it's true. Most shows fail. Most most TV writers end up podcasters. <laughs> we we by the way, uh, we are not failed TV writers. We're not even failed TV writers. We are we are, we like are three steps below that. We are failed everything elsers. <laughs> All right. So, are you ready for your questions? I'm ready for my questions. The Great White Way is so named because of the electric lights. Will that be on the test? Yes. Yes, that will. Theater has been around in America since the beginning of America. Yes. Broadway was a street used by Native Americans, then the Dutch, then the English. You know what? Geography always like is the most important thing on a test. So yeah. Instead of continuing to follow people upstate, Broadway stopped moving because people got into the habit of attending theater on that street in New York and considered it a part of the fabric of the city. Yes. And Broadway shows may be the most influential, but they aren't necessarily the best. Yeah, they'll be on the test. Then they'll tell you to come see your the, your high school play. Yes, please go see like your local house high school plays, guys. Like I know it sounds like a cheesy little thing, but they do such good work. God, we saw like I saw a Mary, production of like High School Mary Poppins that had like full on wire work. Yeah, it was impressive. And Austin, I clocked in at 40 minutes. Oh, yeah. All right. Let me go ahead and open up my... And a lot of that is because we went on a tangent that I believe you started. What? Not I... sure you started it, but I, I believe you did. I never start tangents. You're the one who started the tangents. That's usually true. I started three tangents. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to start mine now. Uh, I'm actually doing a listener suggestion this week. Ooh. Yeah. Well, kind of. Do we know who suggested it? Yes. One of our close personal friends. I've been hearing chiming cell sounds from the inside of our wall, and it's freaking me out. This is the same wall that the ghost has tapped on to let us know we weren't actually recording before, so I keep looking at the thing like, are we recording? <laughs> I don't hear anything. You also thought you heard a doorbell this morning. Okay, that was exploding head syndrome. Yeah. So yeah, I'm doing a listener suggestion, but only kind of, because uh, a listener sent me a TikTok about how we don't know how eels reproduce. Uh, I don't know which listener that would be. And I thought, yeah. I can cover this. I can absolutely cover this. But I, when I looked into it, that's either like, it's a good amount of information for a TikTok video, but not necessarily enough for a podcast, unless I wanted to go study marine biology for a few years so I could understand half of the stuff I was reading about eels. I figured out what the chiming is. Okay. It's your voice echoing against this wall. I do have a very bright voice. It's like a bell. No, it really is. It's your voice kind of going, Duh. Done. It's like the same tone as your voice. I'm going to put, I'll put the, the hard, the, the soft things yep. up there. So yeah, I would have to study marine biology to understand half of what these papers I was looking at meant. So you need to hand this, this topic over to me. And the ocean is terrifying and there is no way I'm going to study marine biology. So hand this topic over to me. But reading about eels, I did learn about an interesting ecosystem that we don't hear much about that's actually vital to dozens of ocean species and is also critically endangered by pollution overfishing, overharvesting, and global climate change. So all ecosystems. Yep. I want to talk about the Sargasso Sea. Okay. Now, it is a sea that is located in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. It is the only sea that is not bordered by any land. It's a sea within a... It's, it's, like, it's like the opposite of Vatican City. Yeah. This, now, this, is, this calm section of ocean is about 1.6 million square miles... And is bordered on four sides by different currents. The Gulf Stream, the North Atlantic Current, the Canary Current, named after the islands, not the birds. But do you know what the islands are named after? Dogs. Dogs! And the North Atlantic Equatorial Current. Okay, I'm taking off my hoodie, so that's what that noise is. Not a hoodie, it's a, it's actually a comfy. And if they would like to sponsor us and send me just a comfy as payment, I'm all about it. She loves this thing. Like she... oh, I have two of them and I live in them. I wear I wear them every day. So, hey, Comfy, hit me up. I will advertise for you. And all you have to do is like send us a couple of Comfies. It's like, are you working from home? Then you need a Comfy. Yeah. Uh, seriously, guys, they're amazing and totally worth the money. So, yeah. So these ocean currents are what define the borders of the sea. But because they're currents and they're like the borders actually fluctuate depending on the season and the weather. So it's really kind of an inexact area. 
and the size does change around a bit. So does size matter or not matter? Yes. Now, if matter can neither be destroyed or created, merely rearranged, how is it growing and shrinking? Does, Does its matter spreading into different oceans and being replaced by matter from other oceans? Yeah. That's exactly what's happening. You, you explained it perfectly. So these, yeah, these bordering currents create what is called a gyre, which is just a really, really slowly rotating area of water. So gyre, like gyroscope. Yep. Or and gyrate. Gy- uh, now, does gyre, is that spin or is that move? I think Spins. it's spin. Yep. No, I'm just, I'm, I've been thinking so, about etymology a lot. Because with this weird, because I've been thinking a lot about entomology. And how today we learned that vegans can't be painters if they use shellac. Because it's made of insects. Insect secretion. So yeah. in theory, the bugs aren't harmed. So yeah, these they create a gyre, which is just a slow... It's like a really, really, really slow whirlpool that's colossal. Just made by these ocean currents that border it. And it's just... And because it's rotating and it's just... It's made this very calm area of sea where there's not a lot of wind. There's no real internal currents moving stuff around as much. Just the slow rotation. So it's a really calm area of ocean. And it's so calm that a thick mat of brown sargassum seaweed grows on the surface and never actually reaches the ground. So it's just like this floating mat of seaweed just photosynthesizing in the calm parts of the ocean. Gross. Yeah. It's got a smell to it. (laughs) Yeah. I can smell it in my mind. Now, this sea was discovered by Christopher Columbus. That was my Feed the Cats alarm. That was our Christopher Columbus bell. Congratulations. It only took us 103 episodes to get to Christopher Columbus. I think he's come up a few times. Yep. Now, it was discovered by him. Uh, Christopher Columbus actually thought that it was land. It was not land. And he was worried <laughs> that they're going to go to ground on this land that wasn't land. And they kind of freaked out about it. And it was a thing. It I wasn't know- land. It was wrong. It was He's an idiot. I'm not sure if this is true or not, but I learned the other day that he once, he in his log, wrote about how disappointed he was in the level of hotness of the mermaids. Yeah, they were the manatees. And yeah, this TikToker I like was like, I'm pretty sure he fucked a manatee. <laughs> yes. Now, I want to point out, I didn't write that down in my notes, but I knew she was going to mention it when I mentioned Columbus. So I thought, I don't have to write this. She'll just do it yeah, for it was, me. Yeah, it was either going to be the manatees or it was going to be the llamas that I was going to bring up. The only creatures before that that had syphilis were llamas. And then I'll need to double like don't quote me on that. I will double check my facts, but these are what I this is what I understand. Now he might have discovered it, but maybe not because fifteenth uh, century Portuguese sailors knew that there was a calm patch of sea with a lot of seaweed in it, and um, a tenth century uh, Islamic explorer uh, Muhammad El Idziri did reach what he described as a vast sea covered in seaweed. That might have been the Sargasso Sea, but he didn't map things out exactly, so we don't know where it was. So yeah, there was that. But Chrissy Sea gets the credit, so there you go. Yet another thing he got credit for discovering that he didn't discover. Mm-hmm. Now, now this Sargasso Sea actually grew, kind of grew to be dreaded by sailors who were going from the old world to the new world. Sounds really dangerous. Because it was a calm section of water, and it didn't have violent storms. But it didn't have a lot of wind, so you could get stuck there and run out of supplies. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it was so bad that, like, boats would throw their horses overboard so that they could, like, save water because it wouldn't rain. They wouldn't get fresh water. So they'd throw their horses overboard so they'd stop having to give them water. Now, were the Vikings the ones that had both sails and oars? Because they, like... Uh, ones of many that did, yeah. Because, like, some of them were smart enough to realize that we might need different things at different times. Yeah, so it was just this very calm... They called it the doldrums, which is, you know, we talk about boring. And ships could be becalmed for weeks or even months where they just not move very much at all. So the seaweed alone sounds enough that even if they had a current, it'd be hard to get through. And on top of it, the seaweed would actually start to grow up the ship. And barnacles, which were kind of living in it, would attach themselves to the hull. So even when you would start moving again, you'd be covered in seaweed and barnacles, and that would be dragging you back and like making you slower so it was real bad like sailors hated this sea yeah this sounds like a nightmare and on top of this very natural phenomenon a unnatural reputation is attached to the air is this the bermuda triangle it's a part of the bermuda triangle yay yeah the bermuda triangle is a triangle of sea between miami puerto rico and bermuda which is actually an island in the atlantic it's not in the caribbean at all Mm mm-hmm 
and it's best known for missing ships and airplanes. You know, people will just disappear. And again, this area was once again discovered by Christopher Columbus. Should have kept him there. Because he observed uh, strange lights streaking through the air and, uh, and crashing on the ocean and also a bunch of bizarre compass readings. Yeah. Now, the bizarre lights were probably uh, meteors and the cr- compass readings were because he was in an area of the ocean where magnetic north and true north actually matched up. And they didn't know about that, or he at least he didn't. So it's like, huh, why is everything weird? It's like, well, it's because these two things match up here. Yeah, I, I think the area, there is something weird about it. Yeah. But... Well, this is the fun thing. There's all these ships that go missing, but someone actually went and did an in-depth study of the Bermuda Triangle. And this area of sea, uh, the amount of ships that go missing in this area, is exactly the same as the amount of ship- ships that go missing in every other part of the ocean. It is no higher, no lower. It's not ships that I worry about, it's planes. Ships and planes both. It's just things that go missing, they go missing at the same rate in the Bermuda Triangle as they do everywhere else. There's just something about it, man. It's the weather. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's got the Sargasso Sea, which is kind of dreadful. It's like they've got these weird cloud formations that show up that really don't show up other places. Yeah. Um, which is just, it's a dangerous area to fly or yeah, but it's whatever no, through. Yeah, but it's no more dangerous than anywhere else in the ocean. I think... Do you think historically maybe it was, and now they've learned how what the th- what's going on and, w- and when? Yeah, they need to I think it's it? de- definitely the, Sar- the Sargasso Sea actually plays a big part of it because the, they would find these ghost ships that had been abandoned with nothing on them, and it was just ships that from because these currents go to this ocean and will drop stuff off in it. So like you know someone people on a ship could have starved or there could have been an accident and your ship just ended up drifting and it ended up in the sea from somewhere else in the ocean and just kind of collect there. They'd find these ghost ships. They'd see. All of these things. Oh, also, it's possible that because I was going to talk about William Shakespeare, I'm going to talk about William Shakespeare. They think that the Tempest mm-hmm. took place in the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah, Shakespeare. Like that's the thing is we thought the problem with learning about stuff in a vacuum is we don't really realize how much other people knew. Like it blew people's minds when they learned that dinosaurs weren't really a thing yet when George Washington was yeah. alive. Um, which we've t- we've kind of talked about on the show before. Which is you know. Eh. Um, but if we talk about things in a vacuum as if they didn't happen at the same time, it gives us no context for history. It just it, I think I think it's kind of. But yeah, the, they th- it took place there because there was already regular transatlantic shipping when he wrote The Tempest. And there was a story that was widely circulating at that time about a Bermuda shipwreck. And they think that's what he based The Tempest off of. I'm now thinking about what Shakespeare would have written about the American Revolution if he'd been alive. So yeah, anyway, back to the topic of those just floating ships that people see. Uh, like, for example, there was a yacht, the Conmara 4, which was found drifting unmanned in the Sargasso Sea in 1955. And the stories were that, oh my gosh, the, they must have been kidnapped by aliens. Sure. Or something has happened, there was an accident, it's the Bermuda Triangle. Well, um, it turns out that that boat had been carried in by these currents, and it was actually being towed for salvage to a different port when the rope broke, and it just drifted in the Sargasso Sea. But, like, there were these stories that sailors would tell of finding ships adrift with no crew, or tales of ship graveyards at the center of the Sargasso Sea, slowly rotting, just trapped forever in this seaweed on mats thick enough you could walk on. But you shouldn't, just in case. You shouldn't. And just, like, with, like, you know, just skeletons, trapped people, just this, just trapped forever in this rotting seaweed purgatory. And this actually became a setting for some other stories, like the the adventure tales of like when our parents were kids, like the cartoons and comics, like Ducktales, Tintin, Johnny Tech Quest. I'm sorry, wait, are you saying Ducktales are our parents? Because that was definitely us. The comics. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Scooby Doo, and just all of these, like, because it's a winning formula. It's uh, spooky shipwrecks, pirates, ghosts, sea monsters, lost treasure. It's like the jazz square of cartoons, a real crowd pleaser. Everyone loves a good jazz square. Yeah. But yeah, so these ships that they found were probably just ones that had something had happened or they had been trapped in the Sargasso Sea and everyone died and they just drifted there because there was nothing really to move them out. But and those currents, because I'm going to pivot now, those currents are what make it really ecologically important because those currents, animals use them as a way to get to the Sargasso Sea to breed to eat, to uh, take shelter in the floating mats of seaweed while they mature. Um, like, you know, baby loggerhead sea turtles will actually ride ocean currents to get to the Sargasso Sea 
where they can safely grow grow up well sheltered by the floating mats of seaweed. Isn't it crazy how animals just know how to do these things? Yeah. Kind of like our epigenetics episode talked about how we are born just knowing how to do certain things and knowing to fear certain things. And much like the uh, sea turtles, the eel uh, eels will use these currents to get there where they use it for their breeding ground. And here's where I get to the eels tangent because eels are weird. Like, first of all, there's a bunch of species of eel that we like thought we didn't, we don't know how they reproduce. We have no idea how they reproduce. Like we have examined them and dissected them and we can't find their sexual organs. Isn't there a shark or a whale or something that just like asexually reproduced at, at an aquarium? It was, they're calling it a virgin, a virgin birth because they, there were no males in there. Yeah. Like all sorts of strange stuff like this. Well, we don't know how the eels even reproduced. And we also didn't know a lot of their lifestyle cycle because what we thought were several different species of eel were actually all just one species of eel in their like, you know, that with different morphology where they change, where like their form would change so much during their lifetime that we would think like their size, coloration, and even if they lived in salt water or fresh water would change over their life, which uh, being able to go back between salt water and fresh water back and forth is incredibly uncommon in aquatic life. I sent Austin a map of shark attacks the other day, and they were some in Missouri. Bull sharks, man. Like, all the way up in fucking Missouri, but they have not made it to Kansas. It's because we don't have any water. We got, like, a pond. Hey, we have sinkhole Sam. Yeah. So, we we don't... We just assume with these eels, because we can't find any of their sexual organs, we just assume that while they're migrating, because they will go, they will uh, be born in the Sargasso Sea, migrate to Europe, swim upstream into lakes and rivers and live their lives up there, grow up. Then they'll change again and go back out to sea and swim on the ocean currents back to the Sargasso Sea. And we assume somewhere along this journey, they grow their genitalia and then they breed in the Sargasso Sea. And that's where the little baby eels are born. Alternative theory. You said they go up to Europe and like live in the lakes and shit there. Yeah. They're all just baby Loch Ness monsters. And the Loch Ness monster reproduces asexually and just shoots babies out into the Sargasso Sea. Maybe just like a cannon, just boom. Yeah. So yeah, we don't. So yeah, we don't know how they breed. <laughs> we don't know what their genitals look like, and we don't even know their full life cycle. Eels are weird. Are these one of the one? Are these one of the, the many sea creatures that could potentially be immortal if we didn't get in the way? No, but it's like we don't know a lot about them. And of course, the Sargasso Sea is also important feeding ground for migrating humpback whales, and for also it's you know tuna grow up and will eat lots of stuff there. It's lots of stuff depends on the Sargasso Sea for food, shelter, everything. And there's even entire species adapted to live their entire lives in the Sargasso Sea. Like there's a species of frogfish that just lives its entire life from death to birth in these bats of seaweed and will even kind of like move around on the surface. You can see it almost kind of walk. It's really funny looking. It looks like a nightmare monster. So yeah, it's important. It's got these currents. It's got all of this stuff. But these same currents that help sustain it and bring all of this stuff to it are also contributing to some of its mm -hmm. because these currents will also carry pollutants and trash into the sea where it gets trapped in the gyre and doesn't really leave. Like uh, in 1965, oceanographers were able to determine that there was, in fact, more spilled oil in the Sargasso Sea than there were seaweed mats. Oh, and. Like, similar to the Pacific Island Garbage Patch, which is just a floating... Yeah. Like, similar to this, where it's just it's the size plastic. Of, it's the size of Texas. It's the size it? of Texas. Well, the plastic ends up in here, and it slowly breaks up into small pieces of plastic that are about the size of plankton oh. that will get eaten by small fish and end up in their bodies and, like, in their digestive tract, where it, they'll starve, they'll choke on it, and then bigger fish will eat them. And it goes up far enough up the food chain that even us, like... a like, you know, people who are eating fish are eating some amounts of microplastics that are just in the bodies of fish that that we catch. It's a problem. And also, like, discarded nets will float their way into here and trap and kill animals in the seas. And in addition to all of this pollution, the sea is very vulnerable to overfishing and even overharvesting of the sargassum seaweed because uh, people like to use it as an organic fertilizer, mm -hmm. which, like... Be careful when you're picking out organic fertilizers. Because like, oh, it's organic. It has to be healthy. It is not necessarily because a lot of them are used by harvesting unsustainable resources like the sargassum, sargassum seed. Okay. Uh, Austin just reminded me of something when he was talking about the oil spills and all that. 
Um, if you are somebody who wants to donate their hair, but your hair is not long enough or you've like done stuff to your hair, like colored it, you can actually still donate your hair to places that use hair to soak up oil spills in the ocean. They make like out of hair because your hair absorbs oil. They make out of hair and fur and all of that, like mats or twisty things that they used to soak up actual goddamn oil spills. Ooh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So if you have shorter hair, they can even use hair clippings at some of them. Like if you're a hairstylist and you're like willing to collect the hair, some of them will actually use that. So yeah. And on top of all these pollution and over threats, much like everywhere else, uh, global climate change is a huge threat. Let's see, just because of the clays uh, changing ocean temperatures, affecting life cycles and what's growing in the water. But it also affects it in a very different and unique way because the sea, the sea currents can be disrupted by global climate change. Like you've, you've probably heard about how like, you know, it, the melting ice in Greenland and in Iceland could change the Gulf Stream. Mm -hmm. That is one of the borders of the Sargasso Sea. If one, if these currents are disrupted significantly, this sea could disappear. Like, there is nothing we could do to fix that. It could just be gone. And there's life forms that are developed entirely to depend upon this sea. And they live all throughout the ocean. And this could be just a collapse of and causing mass extinctions on just an apocalyptic scale in our oceans. And it could, it'll have, it will have repercussions going all over the planet. But luckily there are a lot of major conservation efforts going on in the Sargassums. Like in 2014, uh, dozens of Caribbean countries, the United States, Bermuda, and other nations came together to sign the Hamilton Declaration, which is not related to the musical, but named after the capital of Bermuda. Hamilton. And so they formed the Sargasso Sea Commission to lead an international effort to conserve this unique ecosystem. So we're at least doing something about it. But again, the best thing you can do about it is be sure to not discard plastic into waterways and do anything about global climate change. I know you as an individual can't really do a ton, but it'll take corporate and... Well, it's like if every individual does a little bit. And think about like... Back when COVID first started and the whole world was like on board, let's shut down, the hole in the ozone layer started to close. It was two goddamn weeks. It was already closing, though, but it closed faster because we stopped doing shit. So, like, seriously, guys, if we just, like, played the quiet game for a solid six months, we might be able to fix some shit. Yeah. So whoever speaks first loses. Yeah. So there's Austin lost. We're doing a podcast. We can't play the quiet <laughs> game on a podcast. Hey, if it could save the world, are you telling me that you would not play the quiet game on a podcast? I don't want to alienate our listeners. Um, Austin, they might have wanted to play. You just took the game away from them. Good. I, I just, I, I'm both saying I don't want to alienate our, our listeners, and I also don't want them to play a game. They should be listening to me. <laughs> no, guys, I will say you shouldn't be playing like Yahtzee or something if you're driving a car while you're listening. But playing the quiet game. It's a good game to play while you drive. Oh, boy. I remember we convinced my sister to play the quiet game once, and it lasted for about 20 minutes. Then she realized we had tricked her because she's smart. See, here's the thing, guys. Austin and I are really competitive, and also I talk a lot, and he has yet to realize that he could sometime challenge me to the quiet game and see what happens. I'm, Don't I'm, tell him. <laughs> I'm saving it for a rainy day. Literally a rainy day when we're both strapped inside. So, yeah. That was... So, I actually learned about something new that I really didn't expect to learn about all because a fan sent me a TikTok about an eel fact that seemed really fucked up and I wanted to talk about it. So yeah, send us suggestions because sometimes I learn stuff I didn't even know I, I didn't even know I didn't know, you know? Which fan was this? You can just say a first name. Julie. Yeah, I figured. Hi, Julie. I love like we talk like Julie, our fan, not like she wasn't the officiant at our wedding. <laughs> Yeah. We, yeah. She just discovered us, guys. Like she had, she's she discovered us, much like Christopher Columbus discovered. No, sorry, Julie. <laughs> don't, you, don't you dare compare her to Christopher Columbus. No, I would never. She would never have sex with a manatee. Ew! Don't do that. <laughs> so yeah, are you ready for some questions? I don't. I now I think I'm scarred for life because I didn't even think in that direction about it. <laughs> sorry, Julie. Are you ready for questions? Yeah. I'm not sorry. <laughs> okay. Uh. Columbus is falsely credited with discovering more than just America. Will that be on the test? Will the... Okay, it depends on if you're asking if the false part will be on the test. Um, yeah. Because if they're saying falsely credited, the answer will be no. If we're saying credited, the answer will be yes. Will the fact that Hamilton is the capital of Bermuda be on the test? 
Well, the fact that Bermuda is even a country be on the test. It better be. Just because the Beach Boys sing about it doesn't make it real. I mean, they also sing about Kokomo, and that place isn't real. I think it is now. It might be. I think it's like a town. Well, the fact that nobody has ever seen eel genitals be on the test. Okay, is it any eel genitals or just a specific uh, kind? A few spe- specific species of eel. Um, maybe people have seen eel genitals and they were really scarred for life and just can't talk about it. Did we even consider this possibility? <laughs> you know what? I don't think we did. Maybe that's what happened to all of the shipwrecks. It wasn't that they got stuck in the mats. It's that they watched these eels reproduced and their brains just went all crazy and they forgot how to sail. I think I like your theory. I think it'll stand up in a court of law. Let's go forward with our case. Perfect. All right. Will the fact that there was more oil in the Sargasso Sea than the seaweed that the sea was named after be on the test? Mm, yeah. And will the fact that uh, the, mani- the, the known manatee rapist, Christopher Columbus, thought the seaweed was land be on the test? Watch, there's, like, some remaining Columbus relatives who are highly litigious. <laughs> like, okay, honestly, if we ever get that kind of reach where someone asks us to take down a podcast, <laughs> I'd be thrilled. Yeah, we'll come and be like, a family member of a apparently highly litigious historical figure who definitely did not have sex with manatees or llamas has said we need to take down the episode. So we're doing it. I guess we could just say... I mean, that's true. That might just be libel. We can talk about how he was a genocidal maniac. Hey, we're not saying anything about his current living family members. I, they could yeah. all be very lovely people. <sighs> yeah. Columbus. Why do we still do Columbus Day, man? Uh, it's when when was the last time you got Columbus Day off of work? Never. We Actually, we used to kind of get it off work. Back when we were in high school, it was a holiday. Back when we were in college, it was a holiday. Until recently, like when I started teaching, it stopped being a holiday. I hope they remake it a holiday for when it becomes Indigenous Peoples Day officially. Yep. I think it is, like, officially, but officially not a federal government holiday. I don't know. Yep. But no, we don't really celebrate it anymore. It's kind of one of those things that we've kind of started going, "Mm." Mm. Is he an important historical figure? Sure. But did his own country strip him of all of his titles? Yeah, Yeah. it's true. The Spanish Spanish Inquisition was like... We need to talk, Christopher. And he just wasn't expecting it. No, no one ever suspects it. So speaking of unexpected things, where can people find us? People can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash on the test pod, on Instagram at on the test pod, on Twitter at on the test pod, which is the easiest way to reach us. Uh, our website on the test which I am still doing battle with. So if it's giving you an error message, I don't know if it is or not. Um, that's because I don't know how to internet. And we are on the TikToks at On The Test Pod. And, you know, we actually do hope to create some content on there. Um, Yeah. We're just, we're millennials. We're not geriatric millennials, but we are millennials. I think I technically am a geriatric millennial because I'm a little bit older than you. Austin's actually 47. 46 and a half. (laughs) Uh... I know I'm not a geriatric millennial by looked because I looked up. Honestly, I don't know why people get so mad about this stuff. I think it's funny. Just like the kids calling it um, the 1900s, the late 1900s. I think that's hilarious. They're not wrong. Yeah. And like if we like we talked about you know the 1950s way back when when like it was so long ago when our parents were being born then our grandparents were very much in oh. their prime and. Okay. Oh, want to hear uh, my I feel old moment from yesterday? Hmm. So I saw someone's t-shirt and it was like, oh, wow. It said Latin club on it. It's like, oh, cool. Latin club. I was in a Latin club. Then I looked at the years and it was 2009 to 2010. It's like, oh, oh, I'm old. I am very old. In Austin, 2009, 2010 still means 11 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We found out today that Mae Whitman is younger than us because we were looking up where Bill Pullman is. And the thing is, then we realized that we're old enough to remember who Bill Pullman is. (laughs) Yeah. We remember uh, we saw Independence Day in theaters. I actually don't think I did. We're old enough to remember going to movies in theaters. <laughs> Four score and seven years ago. <laughs> I remember when Netflix came in the mail. Actually, I loved that, though. I really did. And that's how I got to see some movies that they can't get streaming, like uh, the musical Notre Dame de Paris. Ooh. It's in French. It's amazing. You should see it. They're on rollerblades, but it's not at all like Starlight Express. What? Um, oh, God. Austin, I will need to. I will Let me look at interlibrary loan. Well, okay. Or you can. Yeah, I guess I can. Uh, see if we can find Notre Dame de Paris. I'm saying it all like I know how to speak French. I do not. But like they, it's um, the Hunchback of Notre Dame. But on rollerblades. There are rollerblades. It's set like in modernish times. They're on rollerblades and they are doing like fucking limbo moves while they're on rollerblades while the limbo part is also moving. 
And it's I'm making it not sound nearly as cool as it is, but it actually does have an extremely strong plot. And this was playing in Vegas for years too, if that gives you the idea of the level of spectacle. Ooh. And it's the it's narrated by a guy whose name is Garou. Like he is a known French singer named Garou, which means of course wolf. wolf. Um, and he sounds kind of like a wolf. Uh, and he sings both the French version and the and then Celine Dion did a cover of the primary song for it. I'll make you listen to it later. All right. Um, so, folks, we are on the test pod, basically, on every place you might look. We are Will This Be On The Test. We are going to be in New York this week. We do still hope to have an episode out for you next week. If we don't, we'll put out a little announcement. But Austin, Austin's, like, in the weeds with us. Like, he is, like, ahead of schedule. Me, I research for a living, so I am so picky. And then I also have uh, several freelance jobs for which I research for a living, so I, I fully admit, like, it sounds like I'm the one I'm procrastinating. It's actually the opposite. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying Austin doesn't do a good research job because he does. He's just faster than me because I am so goddamn picky. And I read yeah, it's it. like she's uh, she's more meticulous. I am more like I read five or six articles and synthesize something that sounds fun. Yeah, I um turned in a piece to a job the other day and I was like, this is my reasoning for choosing to eliminate this portion. And I sent them a doctoral dissertation link and it was just because they asked me to include one statistic that that was disproven by this doctoral dissertation wow so it was a uh, not short no. i didn't read the whole thing i know how to use control f <laughs> it wasn't the only source either that disproved it it was just the biggest one <laughs> this is this is what i live with he gets to hear though my stories that turn into the inspiration for my podcast episodes. Yeah, uh, I'm working on one in my brain hole right now. So, all right, um, you can find us on all the websites, and I'm gonna go make less awesome listen to Notre Dame de Paris now. So, on and that, oh, go, oh, I'm guessing. Are you hungry? So we have to leave now. I'm actually not. I'm <gasps> not hungry uh, because Austin. We are trying to get our fridge cleaned out before we leave town, so Austin just kept bringing me food earlier. <laughs> I think he might be trying to fatten up. Me so I so he can eat me like all Hansel and Gretel style. <laughs> I guess um, on that note, class, class dismissed. dismissed. I think you talked for almost as long as me.